Good evening to you all, early birds as you are. Uh, I always ask the same question, so I'm not going to make any exception. How many of you are seeing Tosca for the first time in your lives? Live. Okay, you're, you're my special guest tonight. I'm most of all interested uh, in, in you. Uh, Tosca is probably one of the most popular operas. Some say that's self-evident. Why? Because it's so great, and they've seen it 50 times. Others, a um, few snobs, say, how could that opera be so popular? It must be bad. You know, well, the answer is it's popular because it's good. It's not just good, it's great. It's one of the, for me, it's one of the most perfect uh, theatrical works um, in, in, of, of all of the operas, and that's the reason it works. It works because it is perfect musically, it is perfect dramatically, uh, it's unique in its way. Uh, anybody here never heard uh, a Puccini opera? How about that? Anybody hearing a Puccini opera for the first time? Okay, not too many. Now, so you probably know La Boheme, you probably know Madame Butterfly. Well, those three operas were written fairly close to one another at four-year intervals, Boheme being the first, Tosca being the second, and Madame Butterfly being the third. Um, they all share the same, uh, the same writers, the same librettists. Um, this, this is uh, Boheme was Puccini's fourth opera. Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa are the two collaborators who did these three operas together. Uh, they have something in common and they have nothing in common. They have something in common because underlying almost every work of Puccini are certain themes, and we're going to come back to them, but uh, he is a man who said, I like to tell the story of little souls. What does that mean? The suffering of little souls, excuse me, suffering of little souls. What does that mean? So, well, that is in a way the credo of the time, the verismo. What is verismo? Verismo, uh, coming from the Latin and the Italian, vero meaning truth. It's about telling, the, telling uh, stories about life the way it is, not mythology, no gods, no, no Wagnerian, uh, uh, the Nor Norse gods, no Greek gods, no Roman gods, no mythology, no kings, no emperors, no czars, no popes. It's about people like you and me. And so uh, this was Puccini's specialty, and it was the specialty of the time. It had come um, into its time. Uh, operatic Verismo, with a capital V, refers to the period that starts around 1890, uh, and the first, uh, the first big success was Cavalleria Rusticana by Mascagni, which was based on one of the first most important Verismo uh, coming from literature. Uh, stories of Sicilian life. Pagliacci is another example, which you know well, that's a sort of Verismo opera. So there's Verismo with a small V, which is what we're talking about, talking about everyday life, and then there's Verismo with a capital V, and that's the movement or the period and the time. So um, that's, Tosca is in its way um, a quintessential opera, because it's gonna tell the story of f four people uh, who get, uh, whose, whose paths crossed, and even though it has all the trappings of grand opera, it's basically about these four people and their interaction. Uh, now, uh, I, have to I always have to tell you a few stories. So I, I remember the first Tosca I saw. I was 14 at the time. So I'm glad you made it, finally. We're glad to see you here. Uh, I was 14. I fell in love with it right away. In fact, uh, I didn't even know he was going to be famous, but Cheryl Mills was Scarpia. I didn't even know. He was unheard of at the time. And then about six months later, I got a chance to sing in the children's chorus. So I've actually been on the stage singing in the first act of, uh, of Tosca. It was, however, the end of my career. 
as a child soprano because uh, my voice had already changed and I was faking it and at rehearsals I always sat in the last row and sang with a falsetto because I didn't, I didn't want to miss the fun of being on stage. But on that particular occasion the chorus master went around and asked us all to sing individually, which I did. Um, and she looked at me and she said, your voice has changed. I said, yes. She said, this is going to be your last opera. <laughs> Well, it wasn't. I stopped singing operas at that point, but it was not my last opera, and I'm still here to tell the, tell the tale. Um, this, is, this, is, this opera happens to be the opera of which I've conducted more performances than any other opera. So, Tosca, um, tonight is number 69, I think, so it's gonna go over 70 in the course of the next two or three weeks. Um, can't say that often. This is the one. This is the one that happens to have beaten out everybody else. Um, the, I, I opened my, this is my 10th year, as you know, I opened the season with the opera of which I had conducted more productions of any other, and that was Macbeth. That's surprising. It's not surprising that you would conduct Tosca so much, but because it just comes up that much. Uh, but the first one was 40 years ago. Uh, that I did my first one in Miami. I did then three separate runs at the Metropolitan Opera between 1977 and 1979. Um, th uh, the first one of those, uh, uh, the tenor was that there were two tenors. One was called Jose Carreras, and the other one was called Placido Domingo. So Placido and I go all the way back to 1977. The next time around, it was Luciano Pavarotti, and that uh, production, which, was, which featured Shirley Verrett, plus, uh, Luciano Pavarotti, Cornel McNeil, uh, was, in fact, the second telecast in the Mets history. And it was, uh, was recorded, and it has been recently, only in the last few years, released on DECA as a DVD. Um, and and uh, this is not conflict of interest. You can buy it in our lobby right downstairs. <laughs> I'm not bound by any laws about conflict of interest. You can go and find your own copy of that DVD, which is a document. Um, there's also a um, interview where James Levine and I discuss the opera Tosca and a little bit of what I'm going to tell you about now. And you can see what I looked like in 1978. Uh, <laughs> Subsequently, I conducted uh, two runs of it in Paris, again with Luciano Pavarotti, one of those times. Uh, that was the night that uh, the curtain went up, we started, and when it came time for him to appear three minutes later, he didn't appear. Uh, the curtain went down, I went backstage, I said, what happened? And it turns out that he thought it was starting a half an hour later, and he wasn't ready at the beginning of the opera. Um, when um, second act came up, uh, he came out of the torture scene. Uh, those of you who haven't seen it yet, you'll know what this means when you get to the second act. And he sat down on this little chair together with Tosca sitting on his lap and the chair collapsed. And the audience laughed and everybody, to this day, people said, you know, I was once at the Paris Opera and I saw this happen. I said, yeah, I was there too. Do you know who was conducting? And they said, no, I said I was conducting. <laughs> That was an opera, that was a, an evening, but everybody, nobody remembers to say that Luciano Pavarotti sang like a god that night, despite those two little accents. And then once on the Metropolitan Opera Tour, Tosca is accident prone. Uh, we started, uh, it was in Philadelphia, and the curtain did not go up. And so I get a little call from stage management, uh, try again, maestro. <laughs> We're gonna, the curtain went up. Angelotti, who's the first character who is running away from the Castel Sant'Angelo, appears, and his first line is, ah, finalmente, which means, finally. The whole audience laughed. As, there are many stories about the end. You do know, I'm sure, I'm not supposed to tell the end of the story, but most people don't come to see Tosca to see how it ends, because they know. Um, like, you go to La Boheme because you, know, you don't get, you, you know that Mimi's gonna die, but you come anyway. Okay, Tosca's gonna throw herself off the parapet of Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome, and all sorts of things happen, 
there are famous ones like she throws herself off and there's a trampoline down there and she comes right back, <laughs> right back up at the other. Uh, there's others, if she goes down, hits a mattress and this cloud of dust rises up like this. There's the famous one told, many, many places have claimed this. I don't know if it ever really happened, but one night um, they didn't have a firing squad suddenly and they called the local regiment. This supposedly happened in the provinces of France and they brought um, a bunch of soldiers on and said, uh, okay, you see that lady? She's going to run up there. She's going to try to jump off the parapet, and you're going to try to stop her. So they went running up, and they succeeded. They caught her, and, and she never jumped. So, and then supposedly the same little town had the same problem again, and they said this time they said to the okay, the, the, that lady, uh, do, do whatever that lady does. She's going to run up there. You'd follow her and do whatever she does. And so over she went, and the whole regiment went over the wall with her. So anything can happen. I hope there are no surprises like that tonight for you. But uh, uh, Tosca has a comic side for those of us who know those stories. All right, but there is no comedy. Of course, it's a drama. It's a melodrama. It's full of action. Now, the characters are set in historical times. The, uh, the surroundings of this opera are historical, but none of the characters really are. They are based on amalgamations of uh, persons who m did exist, might have existed. We don't actually know um, for sure uh, where they come from. The play was written by a famous French playwright, Victorien Sardou, who wrote many, uh, many works, and he was a real craftsman, considered by some not to be uh, very good, but he did write successful plays, and he liked historical context. So he would thoroughly, um, he, he would thoroughly study the subject, and then he would uh, he would throw a lot of history into that. So he did, and that's why we have a real event, which was a uh, Rome on the, June the 19th of 1800, a day in which Napoleon's forces were supposedly defeated in a, uh, in a, in a battle in Marengo, and the, uh, there was a celebration, and while the celebration was going on, uh, a messenger came in and said the news was mistaken that, in fact, Napoleon had been victorious. Now, Napoleon, of course, was uh, an enemy to the royalists who were in, the, in, the, in, in Naples and in Rome. So it is a historical event. Um, if you like going to Rome, as I do, I suggest you visit Sant'Andrea delle Valle, which is a church uh, very close uh, to the Tiber River. That is where the first act. It is a real church, and it is a fantastic church. Uh, the second act takes place in the Palazzo Farnese. Uh, this is, a, this is a currently an embassy. Uh, this has been a palazzo that has been there for centuries. You may, you may not visit it. It's an embassy unless you have an embassy pass. Uh, and Castel Sant'Angelo is there to see for all, and you can, as I did, as a 20-year-old on my first trip to Rome, climbed up to the top of that parapet, leaned over, and just imagined that I was Tosca looking down there and jumping into the Tiber River, which is what Sardou wanted. Um, Sardou was very insulted when Puccini and Ilica and Giacosa told him that it was impossible that even an Olympic star could not jump far enough to get from the parapet all the way into the river because it's too far. But you know what? It makes a great story and makes a great opera. So Sardou wrote this story with lots of, um, with an enormous amount of historical context. I'll tell you a little bit about that historical context, but I'm going to emphasize that it's not that important. And why I say it's not that important is because Puccini stripped away as much as he could because he was always about getting to the bare bones of the drama and the me melodrama. 
So, um, there are the following characters. There's only one woman, her name is Flodia Tosca. She is an opera singer. This is an opera sung by an, uh, an, opera, an opera singer being sung by an opera singer. Uh, she is, was a, a peasant girl uh, born poor and was uh, herding goats uh, somewhere in the countryside outside of Rome. She was picked up by some, a nice bunch of Benedictine uh, nuns. They brought her to a convent. They brought her up. In the co course of those years, she started singing and it was discovered that she had a voice and it was such an extraordinary voice that the composer Domenico Cimarosa, famous composer, heard her and brought her to uh, the Pope. And he said he wanted her to be taken out of the convent so that she could sing. And the convent fought to keep her. And the Pope was so moved, apparently to tears, he said, your place is in the world singing to make people happy. That is a form of prayer. So Floria Tosca goes out, becomes a big star. M mind you, this is all fiction because it is based on several persons. And um, she uh, is, uh, is celebrated everywhere, loved by all. And she, has, she takes... Uh, a lover, a handsome young man named Mario Cavaradossi. He is the son of, of a uh, aristocratic Roman uh, family, but nevertheless, he is a revolutionary and what's a Republican. This has nothing to do with the, the party of Abraham Lincoln. This is 1800 in Italy. Republicans are, were um, a political movement who wanted to establish a republic in Italy. Remember that Italy in 1800 was not unified. It was a series of states, uh, uh, various city-states, and it was it was a royal. Uh, uh, this, there was a royal, the royalists and the republicans. The royalists in this case is the queen of Naples um, and she is not seen but we know about her and she is actually the sister of Marie Antoinette and they are both Austrian and they are daughters of Maria Therese. That's what's in the background. Okay, So Tosca's become an opera singer. She now takes a lover whom she is public with, a little bit scandalous, but everybody forgives her because she's Floria Tosca. And he could get into tr political trouble because he's a re Republican, but he's very smart. He offers to paint the chapel of the Sant'Andrea delle Valli for free. And so the church is very happy to have this apparently talented painter painting. So we have artists. This is an opera about artists, an opera singer and an and an artist. Okay, that's, that's a tenor and a soprano. Now, as in all operas, um, George Bernard Shaw, you remember, said, an Italian opera, what is an Italian opera? It's when the soprano, the tenor wants to make love to the soprano and she to him, and the baritone tries to stop them. <laughs> this is very pithy and very funny and completely correct, because those were the archetypes, and this is no different. The baritone would like to stop them, because he is the wicked and evil chief of police, Baron Scarpia. Now, Scarpia is a Sicilian. He has just come to Rome. He's been there a week, and he is under political pressure, which I'll explain later. But most of all, he hates all Republicans, and he wants to, he's delighted to to get his hands on Mario Cavaradossi, and he's also delighted to get his hands, in a different sense, on Tosca, because he is lascivious, and he mixes a combination of authoritarianism, uh, a sort of hypocritical religious exterior, and pure, uh, and is a pure seducer. So he's going to mix these pleasures, and that's going to become a part of the story. So we have one other major character. His name is Angelotti. Angelotti is, a, is also a nobleman. He is also a Republican, and he has he's been a political prisoner in the Castel Sant'Angelo, and he has just escaped. And that is what's going to set the entire opera 
in place. So we've got Tosca in love with Mario. There they are, tenor and soprano. We have the baritone who's on the top of the heap there, Baron Scarpia, because he's the man with the power. He has two minions, you'll see them, Spoletta and Charrone. They're not important. Um, and then we, well, they aren't. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but there are no small roles, just small actors. Just remember that. Uh, the singers are important, not the characters. Um, and there's a sacristan for local color. The sacristan takes care of the chapel, and he comes in, and he's a comic character. Uh, and there is a jailer in the last act, and there's a little boy. We don't see him. He's a shepherd boy. And, and that's all. So it's really easy. There are four major characters. Um, they will all end up dead. Uh, which is part of the part and parcel of this opera. Operas are always uh, in this era are always about love. They're always about uh, romantic love, erotic love. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of violence. Uh, Bohème doesn't have any violence. Uh, Madame Butterfly has violence, violence because Madame Butterfly commits harikari. But there's not a lot of violence. Tosca, on the other hand, changes that completely. It is about violence. It is, about, uh, it is about physical violence, it's about psychological violence, and the fact is that uh, there will be two suicides, one man executed and one man stabbed to death, and we will see all of it. So uh, th this is an opera where the essence of the music starts um, with, a violent, with a violent character, and that violence, even though there will be moments of repose, there will be moments of passionate love, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a violent opera. It is the first uh, uh, 20th century opera, I would like to point that out. It was premiered on January the 14th, 1900, which makes it the first 19, uh, 20th century opera. Certainly the first one to stay in the repertory. And it is in its way trailblazing. A lot of the music, which now sounds normal to us, was very dissonant and shocking at the time. Now, as for Sardou, Victoria Sardou, George Bernard Shaw also had something to say about him. He referred to his works as sardoodledom, uh, <laughs> thinking they were very confused and contrived. Um, and uh, he did have, it was a sort of like a, sort of like a, a, a stew. He would throw everything into the stew, but he would come out with a very highly structured work. Sarah Bernhardt was the great Tosca of her time, just as she was uh, Zalome. So you've had two operas in a row which come from plays that were played by Sarah Bernhardt. Um, there's a little bit of Verismo, okay, there's a little bit of the Grand Guignol. What's the Grand Guignol? That's a type of Paris, Parisian theater that specialized in gore and horror. Um, and so it is also, it also is affected. And of course, it's a melodrama with um, all of those melodramatic Characters has a three-act structure. That means there are two. It's a short opera. Uh, has two intermissions. Uh, the th first acts of of uh, Puccini usually start with the first half of the first act being very descriptive, like a picture postcard. Uh, you, get, you think of Bohème, you see the boys horsing around, you know, getting out of paying the rent. The opera really starts midway in act one when Mimi comes through the door and love is born. Right? Madame Butterfly, we see a lot of local color, Japan and a, a wedding and an American officer, uh, lots of ch chit chat, but the opera starts when Cho Cho Star, Cho Cho Star comes on the stage in the middle of act one. Tosca is different. Tosca has no introduction of po picture postcard. You, we are thrown into the drama uh, uh, as if we were shot out of a cannon. And speaking of being shot out of a cannon, Angelotti arrives on the stage into this church, and he has been escaped the, from, the, from the prison at Castel Sant'Angelo. Now, Puccini 
never failed to give you local color, and so he's going to do it in a different way. The first act is going to have, inclusive, a great religious procession, which is going to be celebrating the supposed victory against Napoleon. And you will see the cardinal, you'll see the procession, you'll hear the choir singing. Um, so you get a lot of that local color, and you're going to get it again um, later in the third act with Castel Sant'Angelo. But he doesn't take any time to give it to us. He wants us thrown headlong into the, uh, into the, the drama. So um, as he does in all of his operas, before act three, he has a moment of repose and a, a musical piece for us to listen to something beautiful, slow, and evocative. Manon Lescaut has the famous intermezzo without any action. La Boheme, if you think to La Boheme, the third act opens at the pre-dawn uh, with the cold weather and the workers who are waking up and coming onto the scene in the snow. Um, Madame Butterfly has that beautiful interlude for the orchestra, which is, as Chochosan has spent the whole night looking and waiting for Pinkerton to arrive, you get this pre-dawn. And we're going to get a pre-dawn portrait of Rome as well in Act 3, um, replete with church bells, uh, a shepherd boy singing, uh, and also some cow and goat bells being heard in the distance. Uh, it is said uh, that Puccini got up himself at 3 o'clock in the morning in Rome and sat outside and notated all the various bells he heard in Rome in order to reproduce something that was, uh, was some reminiscent. So to a contemporary Roman, if they went to the performance on January the 14th, and I should, uh, I should add it was pr premiered in Rome as well, um, they would maybe have recognized those that were up at 3 o'clock in the morning, naturally, uh, coming home from the opera, no doubt. Um, so, uh, Sardoodledum, according to, uh, to George Bernshaw, were all made with plots that were insignificant, objectional, or trivial. Uh, and he said, what a shame this wasn't an opera. That's what he said about La Tosca by Sardou. What a shame this wasn't an opera. Well, that was prescient, because it became an opera very shortly, and that opera full of sex, sadism, religion, and art, all put in a, uh, a political context. It's also a character drama about what? Jealousy as a fatal flaw. The same fatal flaw that undoes Otello, and Otello was the most important singular opera uh, in that period because Verdi had just, was just in his very last years, but he had left Otello behind. Tosca has the fatal flaw of jealousy. Iago and Scarpia are brothers in the sense they are both wicked, they are both evil, and they both play on the jealousy of the major character in order to, ga to gain, um, to get their goals achieved. Uh, of course, Iago has the handkerchief, the fazzoletto of Otello, and Scarpia has, um, has, the, uh, has the fan, the ventaglio, and he's going to use that fan. Um, so there's a torture scene that's pretty new to opera. There's an execution, a real one. On, uh, I won't tell you all the funny stories about what goes wrong with the, with the executions in Tosca either. Um, there's an attempted rape, there's a murder, and there are two suicides. Um, Sardou gained the nickname the Caligula of the theater. Okay, from that. Um, so June 17, 1800, and that's the date. Bear that in mind, Napoleon has just defeated the Austrians at Marengo, and there's a conflict between Italy, Republicans, and Royalists. Angelotti and Cavaradossi are the Republicans. Scarpia is the Royalist. F Tosca is apolitical, but very religious and very close to the Queen. 
Uh, so that's important. And I, as I mentioned, that queen is named Maria Carolina. She's the daughter of Maria Theresa of Austria and the sister of now, the now late Marie Antoinette of France. There's mention of a famous composer, Giovanni Paisiello. Some of you might have seen his Barber of Seville when I did it a few years ago with the young artists. Uh, he actually taught Puccini's grandfather in Naples. Puccini, Puccini's uh, uh, father grandfather and great-grandfather were all musicians in, the, in, in Luca where he was born and he was given that title at the age of six when his father died prematurely. He did not take over the job at the age of six but he was given the job at the age of six. Um, Puccini was not very interested in the, in the uh, historical details. He was interested, in, or the subplot, he was interested in the basic five characters, uh, in, the, in the basic uh, four characters. The original play, like all French plays, and I brought my little copy, I just love it, I just hold it. It gives me good luck. I bought it next to the Comédie Française over 30 years ago in Paris, and I still have it. It's falling apart, but there it is, Sardou's La Tosca. Um, you can get it online if you want to read it. It's very interesting. It, you can get it online in English as well. Um, five acts, 23 characters in Sardou, three acts, and only nine characters in, um, in uh, Tosca. La Boheme was said to be all poetry and no plot uh, by the... Uh, by the librettist Giacoso, and he said, and now we have an opera, Tosca, that's all plot and no poetry. Um, she was an untamed uh, uh, creature of coming out of nature. Um, Mario Cavaradossi, as I, I mentioned, uh, French educated and, uh, uh, and revolutionary in his time. Now, the most, I think, important part now comes now, it's the music. Now, I'm not gonna tell you the story in order, uh, you, those of you who know it, know it, and those of you uh, who don't know it yet, you're going to discover it. I will tell you certain details, but I want to explain the leitmotif system. Now, uh, how many of you were here for The Ring? Good, okay. Va uh, Puccini loved Wagner. He, he, he went to Bayreuth as a young man. He completely studied the operas of, of, uh, of Wagner. He actually made the first piano reduction of a score of Meisterzinger in Italian. And he understood the system of using musical motives to tell the story or to help tell the story and to unify the music. Uh, so Tosca is one of the most extraordinary examples of that. And I'm going to show you how it works, all right? There, the first thing you are going to hear is the motive that represents Scarpia, and it is going to generate other motives from it. It is the basic motive, and he will hover over the entire o opera, uh, omnipresent, wicked, <laughs> wicked, evil, and ready, ready to go. There it is, three chords. Um, for any of you that studied music, B flat major, A flat major, E major. This represents uh, what's called a whole tone scale, a scale that instead of going uh, with a, a combination of whole tones and half tones, goes only with whole tones. Debussy loved it, and it's a characteristic of his time. Here's one more, one more go at this. Here's Scarpia. Angelotti will bu burst through the door. There he is. That's Angelotti running. He has just escaped. You can feel his anxiety. Now, the interesting contrast is that Scarpia is in whole tones, and this is, uh, and Angelotti is in chromatic music. That means it's all half tones. Uh, it's not important, but if it interests you, 
It is just me. That's all I want to tell you about it. All right. Whole tones, scarpia, half tones, angelotti. Now, what's going to happen is that every time it's relevant, we're going to hear scarpia's, scarpia's motif. Here it is again. There it is, softly. Angelotto, Angelotto is searching for the key to the chapel that his sister hid there for him. But what's on his mind? Scarpia. How do we know Scarpia's on his, on his mind? Because the music tells us that. One more time. There's our chords. Scarpia. And midway through the act when Angelotti describes the fact that he is a prisoner of Scarpia, we hear... There they are again. And when Scarpia comes on the stage and interrupts the jubilation in the church, and there he is. By the way, this recording is one of the most famous recordings of all operas. Maria Callas singing uh, Tosca, Giuseppe Di Stefano singing Cavarolosi, and that was Tito Gobbi singing Scarpia, with whom I had the honor to, uh, to collaborate with on that production that you can, as a director, no longer as a singer, but as a director, um, and that, that uh, DVD that, is, uh, that you are able to buy in our lobby when you, if you like. Now, now we go into... Here's the end of Act 1. Repetition of the Scarpia chord. So you see, like bookends, he's over the entire act. Sometimes it's buried into a line. For instance, when he says, Tomorrow I will have Angelotti swinging from the gallows. Here it is. So you see how he uses that, that theme. Here's another one. He tells Tosca when she's going to run out to the queen to get Cavaradossi Mario a pardon. He says, he said, uh, that's fine, you can leave, but the queen would be giving pardon to a corpse. So here's how, and he says it to his, here's his chords. And it finishes with a D minor chord. For those of you who are familiar with Mozart, D minor was the key of death. That's the Requiem key, that's the Don Giovanni key. Um, this is stuff that's not important, but these were little signals to, uh, because at the time, musicians knew all of these things, and it was... It, here, he's dying. Listen to his chords. And he dies in D minor. And she says, E morto, he's dead, or gli perdono. Now I forgive him because she's religious. Cut, cut. All right, sorry. Or li perdono. I forgive him. I uh, got a big laugh the other day at the dress rehearsal. I don't know why. <laughs> it's not a laughing matter, but uh, it does sort of see fun. You've seen this violent scene. She says, I forgive him. But that's important because she's religious and she's just murdered somebody. Now, here's this one is really interesting. I'm going to put the volume up a little bit on this one. Scarpia is lying dead at the end of Act Two. And 
Now his chords appear very quietly and solemnly as Tosca puts candles around him. Get scared. Now what has happened here? You can't tell, but listen carefully. And what was it? We were all major, major key. B flat, A flat, major, E major. Now it's E minor. Why is it E minor? Because Scarpia is dead. Okay. There it is. Minor key. Remember from theory class? Major's happy, minor sad. Drum in the back, and then we're going to repeat, keep repeating that E minor chord. And now one more reference in the last act. Mario believes, along with Tosca, that he's been given a safe conduct out of, out of Rome and that Scarpia has signed it. And uh, Mario asks Tosca incredulously, how is that possible? And she says, here it is. Here's a minor chord, you hear now minor chord. Scarpia, Scarpia has given in, how is that possible? And the minor chord tells us what we know and what Mario's about to learn is it's because he's dead. So you see this subtle use of harmony, major chord all the way until after he's dead and then systematically um, a, minor, a minor chord instead. Now, here's some more. This is a secondary theme. It's the beginning of act two. This is the Palazzo Farnese, which are the apartments of Baron Scarpia. And it is a derivative of those three chords. They go now instead of going up, where they usually go up, now they're coming down. And that's a, a secondary theme. That's the, that is the Palazzo Farnese, the palace of the Farnese Palace. Okay? Now, another derivative of Scarpia interrogation. You hear this E natural, that was the third note of the Scarpia, you know, and then you hear bop, bop, bop. So there's B flat, C, D, E, that's your whole tone scale. It's been turned upside down and it's gonna be repeated. He's gonna ask Ma is Mario Caro Adossi to tell, the, tell him where is Angelotti. He says, I don't know. Then you hear bop, 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 bop. That is a combination of Scarpia and where Angelotti is hidden. Where is Angelotti hidden? He is hidden in the well, in the villa that belongs to Mario Cavaradossi. That theme of the well uh, is also derived from the Scarpia theme. Here it is. This is the well. So as you remember, motives can be a person, they can be a feeling, they can be an event, they can be an object. So here is the well, and Mario describes the well. He says to Ancelotti, if anything happens, if anybody comes to disturb you, go into the well, halfway down, there's a little chamber you can hide there. And in the second act, when Tosca, ha having reacted to Mario's torture, gives in and tells Scarpia, Angelotti's in the well in the garden, this is what we hear. There it is, you, you, Mario's last cry. And then to torture, to 
to torture Tosca. Mario said, Mario says to Tosca, Tosca, you didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him. She says, no, of course not. No, my love, of course I didn't. And he smiles and sneers at them and says, nel pozzo del giardino, va, Spoleta. Go to the, the well in the garden. Giardino and we hear, <laughs> and there's the well theme. When, when Scarpia orders his minion Spoleta around, here it is again, and here it is again. When Spoleta leaves, to a, a, a mirror image there. Now the beginning of Act One, Angelotti. That chromatic scene, very unstable, driving forward. That's Angelotti. Here's another example of a more music from Angelotti. All chromatic. And in the second act, when Spoleto comes in and tells Scarpia, we found Angelotti in a well and he had committed suicide so that we could not, we, we could not capture him. Now here's an interesting... And this is the third Angelotti theme. Chromatic and unstable. Now, where did, from where did he escape? Castel Sant'Angelo. Here it is. New motive, Castel Sant'Angelo. Here it is again, slow and loud. Here it goes. In the bass instruments, an answered. And here it is, full force. Full orchestra. This is the escape from Sant'Angelo. Now, Mario, Mario Cavaradossi has a noble theme. Here it is. It's going to become very intertwined with the painting that he is working on, which is Mary Magdalene, Maria Maddalena, La Maddalena, as she's referred to. Here it is again. Listen to the melody in the violins. That's Cavaradossi slash Maddalena. Maddalena, by the way, is the sister of Angelotti. Her, she is a Marchese. She's Marchese Attavanti, and she's been in the church in order to hide food, drink, clothes as a disguise, and the key to the chapel. She's been, that's why she's been in the chapel. And Mario Cavaradossi, not knowing this, but finding her very beautiful, decided to sketch her face and use it for the Maddalena. So you hear, and this is what's going to make Tosca very jealous. Here's another one. This becomes a combination of Cavaradossi and the Maddalena. This is going to become transformed into the love duets. 
One of the greatest love duets of coming out of the pen of Puccini. In the love duets in Bohème, we see love being born. We see love at first sight, Mimi and Rodolfo. In uh, Butterfly, we see the first encounter between Pinkerton and Butterfly. Uh, those are falling in love. This is already, uh, we discover them after at least a year of a very passionate, sensuous affair, and the music reflects that. The end of the act, when she believes that Mario has run off with the Marchesa Attavanti, we hear the orchestra uh, express this, her pain in this interlude. In the fourth act, when Cavaradossi is waiting to be executed, the solo cellos play that theme. Another important theme, Tosca's entrance. She enters and to this beautiful melodic, this is her music, melodic, she's a singer. Scarpia's music is not a melody, it's, a, it's like a statue. Hers, on the other hand, goes horizontally. You can hear the plucking of the strings in the background. Tito Gobi told me that that is the carriages, the horse and carriages, because the door of the church is open and they can be heard coming, they can be heard on the street. She's going to quote this in her famous aria, Visi d'arte, I lived for art, in the second act. And here's an important person. The Madonna. She's very important to, to Tosca. She prays to her several times a day. And here's her theme, important, here it is. That's her. That's the statue of the Madonna in the church. When the sacristan comes along and dusts her off, we even hear it in his funny little music. That's him dusting off the Madonna. And here's an important moment in Act Two. When Tosca is off, gets the offer from the deal, the deal, the art of the deal, Scarpia, okay, I will save your boyfriend if you will now spend the next hour with me. I get an hour, you get a life. And she thinks, before she does that, she thinks of the Madonna. She prays to the Madonna, and here it is. Marty. Marty. I have to back up a second. And then she says, she nods her head, yes. Now you hear bop, boom, bop, bop. The, that, um, is her, uh, that is her nodding her head, yes. And the, the notes of that are A natural and C natural, which in solfege is la, do. La, do also means in Italian, I give, uh, understood, I give you. I give it to you, la, do, which means I give to you, Scarpio, what you are asking of me. That is not an accident. I did not make this up. That's the kind of musical pun that Puccini loved. La, do means I give it to you. 
And so that lado becomes now the motive of the false execution that is supposed to take place. The deal is they will pretend to kill Cavaradossi and then Cavaradossi and Floria Tosca can escape. And so here you see the moment of the deal. Scorpius chords. He says, wait. That's the end of his motive. And then he says, ebbene, well, what do you say? She thinks of the Madonna. Nods her head. Lado. At which point that becomes the, the, the execution. Now, I could stay here with you for several hours. Bring, I'm only half through my list. Here's Sardu. Go and find it. You're going to love it and have a great time today, especially those of you that are here for the first time. Thank you for coming. And